We turn now to Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. There's an outline and some additional reading and kids, a map I put in here today. Maybe if you're wondering what to do this afternoon, you can have Bible quizzing geography. There's a map that kind of explains a lot of this text. It's a very interesting text. It seems very unusual to be here, but you'll see why it's here as we read God's word. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. This is a haunted, tense, dramatic passage. A birthday party, the only birthday party mentioned in the Bible. A prophet who dies as a martyr a multiplied tragedy, as Eric Alexander says. And yet no New Testament passage more vividly portrays for us the storm raging in our conscience. Kids, do you know that God made you and mom and dad, all of us, in his image with a conscience? It's a gift from God. It's the law of God written on our hearts. It's something we must be careful not to ruin. It's the moral faculty within us by which we assess what is good, according to God's law, and what is evil. And children, do you know that when mom and dad were your age, we did silly, childish, foolish things too, and that we still struggle? That we know what it's like to be a 15-year-old or an 8-year-old, and that we are tempted still to disobey the Lord? Earlier this week, I'm talking to my dad. We're going to Glacier National Park here soon. I'm saying, okay, Dad, what hikes should we go on? He said, oh, you've got to go to Grinnell Glacier. That's where you, as a kid, took rocks from the glacier just because they told you you couldn't. <laughs> that got me thinking about all sorts of dumb things we've done as kids, myself included. Our conscience is telling us you ought not to do this. Sometimes people are pressuring us to disobey God. The question before us is, how do we soothe our sinful and guilty conscience. First, we'll spend most of our time here, the conscience that is troubled. Here we have Matthew 14 seemingly 
random, out of the blue, because it's talking about an event, children, that happened over a year before what's going on in the text. Jesus, though, has been describing violent opposition to his kingdom. And now we see that in what happens with John the Baptist. Herod hears about Jesus, the miracles, the healings, and his conscience is troubled. He wonders, is John back from the dead? Because he knows what he's done. This Herod is one of three sons of Herod the Great that had land divided between them. There were seven sons altogether. Do you remember Herod the Great? The king that was alive when Jesus was born. He lived from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He, among other seeds of the serpent, is raging, trying to kill Christ and destroy God's plan of salvation and God's people. His conscience was troubled when he heard from the the wise men, that a king has been born. Do you remember that? Now here's his son, many years later, who's also troubled as he hears about something Jesus has done. This man, with this whole house of Herods, is a half-Jew, a descendant from Esau. He's not a real king. He's a puppet king. He has some land in Galilee and Perea that he's kind of in charge of, but not really. That's what the map is there for. And the reason he comes up here at this point is because John the Baptist, earlier in the narrative of Matthew, had noticed and called out the sins of this Herod. He has his brother's wife. Aristobulus is one of the sons of Herod the Great. He's the father of Herodias. This Herod, who's Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip were Aristobulus' half-brothers. You're saying, that really confuses me. They're all named Herod. Talk about being focused on ourselves, right? Herod, Herod, Herod. In a disgusting display of incest, Herodias marries her half-uncle Herod Philip, her father's half-brother. She bore him a daughter. Do you know that name? Salome. The Bible never mentions her by name, but Josephus does, and we know this to be true. That's the child born. Herod Antipas, on a visit to his brother Herod Philip, becomes infatuated with Herodias. They both divorce their current spouses. Herodias from Herod Philip, Herod Antipas from the daughter of Aretas, king of the Nabataean Arabs. That's important. That's on your map, and that'll come up later. They marry each other. Herod marries his niece and his sister-in-law. The heart of lust. He has ten wives. John the Baptist hears about this. He rebukes him. This prophet who eats locusts and honey, who's out in the wilderness, who's proclaiming the coming of the Lord. With courage, he denounces this incest and adultery. Jim Boyce tells a story many years ago. Chuck Colson spoke of what would happen when visitors came to meet President Nixon. Now, this is way back, even before kids, your mom and dad maybe were born. They would have all this courage as they're saying, I'm going to tell the president really what's going on. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to be flimsy. The door opens. They march in. It's as if they suddenly sniffed some intoxicating fragrance. 
And those lions of the waiting room become lambs in the Oval Office, and they don't really tell them what they need to tell them. Well, John the Baptist is not like that. The Spirit of God has equipped this prophet to be faithful, to speak about repentance in courageous, direct terms. And he preached it, and Herod didn't like it, but Herodias even more was angered. To satisfy Herodias, Herod has John arrested, bound, put in prison. It's a dungeon in a palace that's also on your map in Perea on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. This palace was built by Herod the Great, finished by Antipas. It's kind of the summer vacation home. It's way far away. It would take a long time to travel there. Thick walls, towers, apartments, and deep under there, children, were dungeons, which still to this day people have visited and seen. And it's there that John the Baptist was imprisoned and bound with iron hooks. Even though he's in prison, Herodias wasn't satisfied. Mark 6 tells us she had a grudge against John. She wanted him put to death. She is vengeful and manipulative, seething in her heart, nursing bitterness. And it's a reminder, as Jerry Bridges says, bitterness arises in our hearts when we do not trust in the sovereign rule of God in our lives. So as I'm reading this, as we're thinking about it, we say, God, give me the grace to repent where I harbor a grudge, where I manipulate others. This is like Lady Macbeth urging Macbeth when he's capitulating. Herodias is a viper. Herod, Jesus calls a fox. But Herod's conscience is still troubled. He would go down into the prison and listen to John preach. He liked it at times. He was agitated and puzzled. And as Alistair Begg says, he would walk away saying, well, I enjoyed John's preaching today. Yeah, he really let us have it. There's no repentance and trust. Herodias' opportune time came when it was Herod's birthday. She waited and waited. Again, a picture of what can happen in the heart. Her soul is full of hatred and destruction. This party included civil authorities, military commanders, prominent social friends. It reminds you a lot of somewhere else in the Bible. What does it remind you of, kids? Esther. King Ahasuerus. During the party, Salome, Herodias' daughter, enters. She dances. This is a men-only affair. She's probably a teenager. The end of the banquet. There's probably a major amount of drunkenness going on. And we see Herodias' evil influence on her daughter. That when a person has a hard heart, it's not contained or confined. It's not just here. It impacts those around us. What we do with God's word has an impact on all those in the sphere of our lives. We see that in Salome. She pleased Herod and the guests. One verse covering a multitude of sins. Erotic, lustful sins. 
It's like a strip club or a porn show, a scene that plays itself out over and over again with too much alcohol and sexual immorality, a warning to us all, young and old, a warning kids to you, what you look at online, how you talk, the things you talk about, pictures. Beware of the day when desire and opportunity and temptation meet. Herod vows to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Remember, this guy's not a king. He doesn't have a kingdom to give. But much like in the book of Esther, chapter 5, he's saying, I'm going to do whatever you want. Prompted by her mother, Herodias goes out to her mother. That's how we know there's only men here. Going out to her, Mark 6, what should I ask for? She says, the head of John the Baptist. She goes back in, give me at once the head of John the Baptist, and then she adds her own twist, like mother, like daughter, on a platter. The mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, gives the word of God to her son, John the Baptist. The mother of Salome, Herodias, puts ruthless death on the lips of her daughter, making us again cry out, God, may the wrong relationships in my life be made right by your Spirit. May I forgive others as you have forgiven me in Christ. May I not sin against you and against them. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, we're not removed from this entirely, even as the depths of the evil continue to go down. Herod's distressed. He's sorry in some sort of a worldly sorrow. His conscience for a moment is torn. He knows this is wrong, but he is so stubbornly prideful. I see myself there. Do you see yourself? His fear of man. It's all over this text. He fears John the Baptist. He fears what the people will say if he kills John the Baptist. He fears his dinner guests. He fears the reputation he'll get from them if he doesn't follow through on the oath he made to Salome and kill John the Baptist. He's enslaved by the fear of man. He's insecure, power-hungry, controlling, people-pleasing. He's a bully. He's a coward. The cowardly are the first in Revelation 21 who will be thrown into the lake of fire, but for the grace of God go I. The coward who compromises to save face. God, forgive me of my cowardice by your mercy. Forgive me when I'm unteachable, when I'm so proud and stubborn and refusing to accept correction. Herod is wrong to make the promise. He's doubly wrong to keep it. If we make a promise we shouldn't make, it's worse to say, well, i got to keep it. He has one fear that he's lacking, doesn't he? He has no fear of the Lord. His pride and his lust are raging in his heart. He orders a guest to go, do the deed, bring him John's head. He goes to the dungeon. The executioner beheads John the Baptist And the forerunner to the Messiah is killed. He's a martyr. As one man says, this is what happens to one of God's choicest 
saints, come to Jesus and you might get your head cut off. Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The fairy tales are not right. Sometimes in this life, the good guys finish last, as DeHung says. This is a mark of a disciple of Jesus, who by the grace and love of God for him, loves the Lord and worships the Lord and obeys the Lord even when it costs us our life. It's better to die being faithful and obedient to God, loved ones, than to live with unrepentant disobedience. John, by the grace of God, kept his conscience and lost his head. Herod takes John's head and loses his conscience. John's disciples had visited him in prison earlier. Matthew 11 told us that. So they go again. And they bury his decapitated body. It begins, loved ones, with lust. That's why we read James 1. We're tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desire. And it leads forth to sin and sin to death. John is troubled. In Mark 6, he says, I killed John. The idea is he, over and over in his mind, knows he did it. It's like Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones were wasting away. I'm groaning. God's hand is on me. I feel like I'm in 110 degree heat, in humidity, and my strength is sapped. That's Herod. But instead of repenting, he's hardened. What is the conscience? I knew it was the right thing to do. I feel awful about what I said to her. I've written this email to him, but part of me feels it would be wrong to send it. Don't do that. You know it could be wrong. As Christopher Ash says, they don't use the word conscience there, but that's what they're talking about. Your conscience is an inner awareness of the moral quality of your actions. In the Old Testament, it's often expressed by the word heart. It's an awareness of the law of God written on our hearts, the divine sense that God put into every person. There's a connection between the conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit, John 16. Flavel said the conscience is God's spy and man's overseer. The Spirit convicts us about sin and the truth about Jesus and salvation. Romans 2 says the law of God is written on every man's heart. Sproul. The single greatest restraint for evil that God has put in the world is the conscience. The most wicked person, those who are described as being without conscience, as being sociopaths or psychopaths, nevertheless have not been able to annihilate altogether the voice of right and wrong that God has implanted in every human creature. I am more like that one than unlike him. That's what that says. The conscience is a prosecuting attorney and a defense attorney. It convicts us of sin by the Spirit. You know, and I know, it reminds you of what you've done. That's why a sermon like this might be hard, especially if we stopped here. It reminds you of what you said, what you've seen, what you haven't said, what you haven't done. It acts like an executioner on us. 
To have a malfunctioning conscience is to be less than human. The problem is the conscience resides in fallen humans. What does that mean? Well, DeYoung shares the story of Pinocchio. Do you remember that, children? Maybe you haven't seen it. The woodcarver Geppetto wants his puppet Pinocchio to be a real boy. It's granted. Jiminy Cricket is the conscience of Pinocchio. What does Pinocchio do? He doesn't tell the truth. And what happens to his nose, kids? It grows as a sign that lies become as plain as our nose. He continues to ignore Jiminy Cricket. And what does he turn into, kids? Maybe this movie is not watched anymore. <laughs> a donkey. He, hee-haw, hee-haw. He starts to blurt out. Donkey ears pop out, a tail. He's becoming an animal. That's DeYoung's point. There's more going on there than we realize as children. Pinocchio ignores the conscience and becomes less than human, an animal. A conscience is not only indispensable to living a life pleasing to God, to enjoying peace with God, it is essential for living as humans that God made us to be in his image. The conscience misfires. Jiminy Cricket, when you get in trouble and don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. When you meet temptation, the urge is strong, give a little whistle and always let your conscience be your guide. If we follow that, that's disastrous. Because through our ongoing sin, we have the ability to put calluses on the conscience. Our conscience is distorted and twisted. Hebrews speaks of an evil conscience. You know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. We keep doing it. We keep sinning. We don't repent. An evil conscience. We make excuses. Well, they, they deserve that. I, I verbally just went after them, but you don't know what they did to me. Our conscience may be evil if it's not rooted in God's law. It may be more hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 1 Timothy 4. The insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The conscience is not working. A defiled conscience is even worse, Titus 1.15. Calling evil good and good evil. And as Christians, we can descend in unrepentant sin into these ways. We can be so fearful of people that we don't think about fearing and loving and trusting the Lord. We're more worried about offending someone else. The conscience grows weaker in proportion as sin grows stronger. And it may lead to the point of a degenerate, reprobate mind where there's no blushing anymore. Jeremiah talked of that in the Old Testament. If God doesn't change our hearts, give us a desire to please him, our heart and our conscience will harden and die in sin. But there's also another category, a weak conscience. We're not going to get into that today. But this is a conscience that accuses us of things that are not wrong. Here's why this matters in the church. The manipulation of conscience can destroy a family or a church. Legalists are masters of guilt manipulation. 
The antinomian, the one who says, chucking God's law, getting rid of it, masters the art of quiet denial. They both separate the law of God from God, Ferguson says. God who is generous and good, who loves you and is gracious. How do people try to soothe their guilty conscience? Moral effort. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to stop sinning. The problem is sin is in the heart. Saying I'm going to stop sinning, first of all, is impossible. Secondly, it's depending on myself, which is the opposite of faith. And it might be the worst act of sin of all. I'm going to stop. No, you can't. On your own. That's what some people do. Second, escapism. They just try to escape through all different ways to numb their conscience. Or they blame others. This is the great evasion of the so-called victim culture. We're all our victims. No one is responsible. It's that person's fault. I shift it. Third, self-righteousness. I feel better about my conscience because I'm comparing myself to you and at least I'm not there. God help us. The conscience is silenced. We fast forward now. It's Luke 23. Some time has passed between the death of John the Baptist and Good Friday. The day has come that Herod has been wanting. He finally gets to meet Jesus. He sees him. He's glad. He was hoping to see a sign done by him, finally. And he looks at Jesus wanting a Houdini act and to pull a magic rabbit out of the hat. Give me something, Jesus. Give me fireworks. Let me be entertained. No trust, no worship, no spiritual interest. He fills Jesus' mind with questions. He's superstitious. He's inquisitive. He's restless. And one of the most chilling verses in all the Bible, Luke 23, Jesus gave him no answer. That's this guy. That's Herod Antipas. Why didn't he answer? Herod had hardened his heart. Just like his great, 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 great grandfather, Esau. He wasn't able to repent, Hebrews 12. He sought it with tears, but it's fake repentance. His conscience is dead. He sees the perfectly righteous, beautiful God-man that we sing about Jesus in the flesh, standing before him. And he sees nothing in Christ. It's possible for us to be so jaded and our conscience to be so dead that we stand face to face with Jesus and see and feel nothing. But for the grace of God, go all of us. Herod is so dead, he dresses Jesus in a robe, his own hand-me-down clothes, Luke 23. It breaks our heart. The lovely Savior, mocked and treated with contempt, and the same thing happens today where people work and eat and sleep the sleep of spiritual death. Nothing touches their conscience. They're not ashamed. There's no blushing. The conscience is dead. Herod reveals what's inside of him. He sends him back to Pilate. 
Herod's father tried to kill Jesus, the boys two years old and under. Now Herod hands Jesus to be crucified. He does what his father wanted to do. Satan is at work, the seed of the serpent, but Christ is in control of it all. Christ is accomplishing your redemption because he loves you so much. Herod and Pilate become friends. They hated each other before that. Perversity, the one thing every unbeliever can agree with another unbeliever on is I will not put my faith in Jesus. I will not. This fulfills prophecy. Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And that's the last message of, and, and mess, uh, mention of Herod in the Bible. Handing him over to Pilate. What happens to Herod? The wrath of the father of his rejected wife in 36 AD, Aretas wages war against Herod. The battle destroys Herod's armies, the Nabataeans, to the southeast. They avenge a stinging defeat to Herod earlier. A few years later, his wife continues to say, here's what I want, you need to do it, and here's what happens. His brother, Agrippa, writes to the Roman emperor Caligula, accusing Herod of treasonous dealings. Instead of being made a king like Herodias said would happen, you're going to be king. He's deposed. He's banished to Gaul. He dies in Spain in 39 AD. The wrath and judgment of God, which we all deserve, comes upon. Today, if you hear his voice, beloved, don't harden your hearts. Herod is like the guy or woman, Alistair Begg says, who goes home after church and says, boy, the pastor's worked up today. He's talking about sin and the mercy of God, but I am utterly unmoved. Satan's favorite word is tomorrow. Tomorrow you can deal with that bitterness, with that unforgiveness. Tomorrow's a great day to become a Christian, but the Bible says today is the day of salvation. The only moment we have is now. Our lives hang on a thread between time and eternity. The question now is, how do you soothe your guilty conscience? The whole sermon is leading up to this question. We still haven't answered it. You can go to hell, and I can as well, with a bad conscience. Those who are in Christ, Satan will want you to doubt God's love for you, to drive you to despair. You don't love others enough today. Your heart is divided. You're a hypocrite. True Christians don't sin like that. Jesus' blood won't cover that one. That's too much. You're vile. You're miserable. Shame on you. You're a worm. How dare you come to church? You are not a Christian. That may happen. Other times, the conscience can be mistaken for the wicked voice of others who remind you of how bad you are. That can happen. Where you feel guilt over things you shouldn't feel guilty over. You're a failure. You're stupid. You're ugly. You're not good at anything. You're dumb. You're bad at sports. Your hair looks terrible. 
Those things can plague someone. They can drive someone to despair. The rates of suicide are skyrocketing among teenagers and also other ages because we have this voice in our heads and we have no remedy for it. That's not the guilt the Bible speaks of. When Satan says you and I are not Christians, you're fake, do you see how she spoke to her kids today? Do you see what he did with his time? Do you see how he treats his children and wife? Do you see the hardness of her heart? Satan says, you are not in God's kingdom. You're filled with lust and pride. Satan can indict us, but Satan has nothing in Christ or on Christ. Beloved, you are in Christ by faith. Your conscience is heavy. You're wounded by your besetting sins. You say, my conscience says I'm not righteous enough. You're weary, you're discouraged, but your righteousness stands today because it is Christ's righteousness. He won't quench a burning wick. He won't break a bruised reed. You stand against his accusations, Revelation 12, by the blood of the Lamb. Satan has been cast out of heaven. He's been cast out by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He has no basis of accusations against you, Christian. There's a Redeemer who's borne your lust and your anger and your self-righteousness and your pride and your self-pity and your laziness. He took it all. He cleanses it all by his blood. There is no condemnation in Christ. None of Satan's accusations can stick. Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover it. I confessed my sin to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt, the iniquity of my sin. Whenever your heart condemns you, beloved, God is greater than your heart, 1 John 3. Jesus is more merciful to you than you are to yourself than your own heart is to yourself. There's more grace in Christ than there's sin in you, praise God. You don't look to your heart or your mood or your health or your circumstances to know whether you're loved by God. Some good days, some bad days. Some people praise you, some people can't stand you. Some sick days, your body and soul, our physical sickness affects how we think and how we live. It's together, we are body, soul, creatures. You do well at some things, you fail at others. God has loved you in Christ with a love from before the foundation of the world. God has forgiven you in the name of Christ. You look to him. You look away from the accusing voice to your Savior before the throne of God above. I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me Because my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, in Christ, before the throne of God, you stand. Forgiven, loved, righteous. Emmaus Road, rejoice in such a great salvation today. Amen. This next hymn speaks of the rest and the joy 
that we have in our Savior, that God wants you to have full assurance of salvation today, beloved. He wants you to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. Let's stand and sing.